0: The year may have changed, but the hacks have stayed the same. Ransomware, Magecart, and data breaches galore.
1: In our interview, we talked to Allison Ann Williams about the data triad and how our company
0: secures it. Your favorite security podcast is back to cure your shutdown blues. Let's go. Welcome to the first Securiosity of 2019. I am Greg Otto.
1: And I'm Jen O'Daniel. Greg, the world of cybersecurity didn't take its foot off the gas over the past few weeks. Never a
0: dull moment in this world, be it a holiday, season change, new year, whatever, it's always happening.
1: Today we're going to talk to Allison Ann Williams, CEO of Enveil Technologies. Enveil is doing some really interesting things with encryption, and she talks all about it.
0: But first, let's get to a wild couple weeks in cybersecurity.
1: The government shutdown has really weighed on the cybersecurity workforce, with personnel at agencies like DHS and NIST either legally unable to continue working or forced to put projects on hold. Making things even worse was the fact that agencies were forced to skip OPM-run job fair earlier this week in the D.C. area, where students in the Cyber Corps program could get more information on open jobs. Students told Greg they still expect to find jobs after the shutdown ends, but booth representatives agencies where cybersecurity has become a focal point, FTC, NIST, State, and DHS' brand new CISA office were left vacant. Greg, this can't be good for the government. What's going on?
0: Um, Yeah, it was something that I was told about earlier this week. Uh, obviously, the shutdown has gone on. I, I believe it's now approaching the longest shutdown in federal government history, and this is obviously weighing on the cybersecurity apparatus. Um, I know that DHS has scaled down a little bit. Some workers have been furloughed over there. NIST has not allowed to touch anything. I know there were a lot of standards and some other projects that they have been working on that uh, had to be set aside. And uh, not only that, but obviously there are people that still need jobs. And this Cyber Corps program is really interesting. So the Cyber Corps Scholarship for Service, it operates in the same way that a lot of other federally backed scholarships work in that the government cuts you a check to go to school and in return with that money, you have to dedicate your career to the federal government for as long as the scholarship lasts. So that's ranging from, like, one to four years. And I know that in some other areas, it can go as far as, like, 10 years. But for the cybersecurity program, it's about four years. Um, So there was a job fair in National Harbor earlier this week. And I went over there to see, you know, how is this all operating with the fact that DHS is shut down from a cybersecurity perspective. NIST is shut down from a cybersecurity perspective. There's a number of other agencies where their cybersecurity apparatus is shut down. How is that really affecting recruiting? And as I walked through the job fair, you saw these big signs for, hey, Department of Homeland Security, hey, NIST, and it was just empty tables just an empty table. Now, that's not to say the entire job fair was empty because DOD was there, the intelligence community were there, there were others, some federally funded research and development like MITRE was there. Well, it's great for uh, them, right? Yeah, They're the going to get the Ad- best of the best. And absolutely. All of those tables had uh, captive audiences and the yep. students were engaged. But when you're trying to get people into the civilian side for cybersecurity, and you have this brand new office that dhs has held up and you just see a vacant table that's run i like i can't think of a worse way for the government civilian side to recruit cybersecurity. yeah it's not happening like it's just so bad and i talked to some students who were you know they were the eager young go-getters that you usually find at stuff like this but a quote from one person stuck out to me in that i was like well okay so you're in this program for three years well, what happens if this happens again? I mean, this is now we're on, I think, the third shutdown in five years, the second in two years. Yeah. Like, th- this might happen again with the, with the political climate that we're in. And she was like, yeah, you know what? If I miss a paycheck, I'm young. That th- This happens. I, I-, I basically... Live on pennies anyway, so what should I expect from my federal government? Which is just a (laughs) wild, mind blowing thing. Yeah, like I, I, I I am still having trouble with it. uh, Almost four or five days later, the 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 rationale of some of our younger people to be like, "Well, my career is going to be so bad that I'm probably going to get stepped on, no matter who I go to." Like, what are we doing? Like, where, where, one, where do you get that mindset? And and two, uh, how do we reverse that mindset overall? Like, this is, like, it is such a fundamental problem that goes beyond whatever shutdown comes next. I mean, uh, look, yeah. the shutdown wow. is going to end, even if it does stretch on politically and it becomes just an absolute disaster politically. <laughs> this is going to end. Like, the government's going to open again at some time. Sure. But yeah. there's going to be those repercussions from this and having it happen back to back that— you know, those You're going to think twice about working there. Right. Well, not even think twice about it. Even the people that are getting into it and are resigned to it aren't excited to to be there. So I, I, I can't think of a worse morale and worse like, recruiting pitch than what you're hearing from some of the people that I talked to. Well, I got to be
1: honest, I don't want them working for the federal government because what kind of output of work are they going to do if you go in with that attitude? and
0: Well, not only that attitude, too. I have actually talked to some cybersecurity people inside on the shutdown that, are, that aren't are furloughed in that, that they're essential workers. Sure. But they're going to work and then being told that they can't do, they legally can't do the work because there are no funds for it. Like. I've talked to some people that are like, I'm going to work and just sitting there. Like, wh- why would you even bother? Why? Why would you even bother? Like, their bosses are being like, yeah, if you want to read a book, go bowling, go do something else. That's, that's fine. I get it. But you got to, quote, unquote, come to work. <laughs> this is an absolute mess. It is a mess. So, in other news, a group of hackers called the Dark Overlord released documents stolen from high-profile firms allegedly detailing litigation and real estate development deals after the 9-11 attacks. In a December 31st pay spin post, the group said it hacked New York-based real estate developer Silverstein Properties, along with insurers Hiscox Syndicates and Lloyds of London, to find sensitive security information tied to the 9-11 attacks. While Hiscox confirmed the breach, both Silverstein and Lloyds denied it, raising questions about whether the dark overlord claims are true. Then earlier this week, CyberScoop's Jeff Stone got his hands on some research from Digital Shadows that looked at the way the hacking group was recruiting new members and looking for ways to raise its profile prior to the leak. The Dark Overlord's employee recruitment campaign initially aimed to fill about four vacancies, and the group later said that three positions had been filled, according to research done for CyberScoop by New York-based firm Digital Shadows. Job requirements included experience with Windows, Linux, as well as expertise in unit based design and network management and penetration testing. They even ended their job posting with the tagline, life's too short not to be rich. Jen, sounds like a great philosophy even for a criminal enterprise.
1: Life is too short not to be rich. So wait, so unpack this a little bit. Did that leak happen or did did this happen to Lloyds of London and and the other one? The leak
0: happened... Jeff has been in communication with the Dark Overlord. They kind of fed us some documents to be like, look, this is real, go go, figure this out. And prior to the leak, they were like, we're gonna blow the top off of all of the 9-11 conspiracy theories that are out there. You're really gonna find out who's really behind 9-11. I gotta say, we looked through these documents, they're not that. They're not some grand conspiracy theory outing where We're talking like jet fuel really doesn't melt steel beams or or something that you can find on YouTube or loose change or anything like that. What these documents are, are a lot of just legal litigation tied to insurance claims. Like Hitzcox and Lloyds of London did a lot of work around insurance claims really tied to who was responsible for what happened in terms of safety on United 93. That's what happened in uh, a lot of these leaks. These, you could find a lot of these documents on PACER. The only difference is between what we were fed and what uh, a lot of these documents were, were the fact that they were on private law firm legal head. Like the letterhead was based off of the legal firms that worked with all of these companies. I could go find these on PACER if I wanted to jump into, you know, Insurance liability cases okay. around nine eleven. So, this is this is not some smoking gun to uncover some grand conspiracy. So this was 9/11.
1: basically um, the dark overlord showing us that here's who made money off of nine eleven. Is
0: that what this was sort of? Well, not just made money off of nine eleven. Just that that's what they were trying to frame it as. And. Look, we are not the only group that the Dark Overlord has reached out to. They've also reached out to Joseph Cox up at Motherboard and have also tried to back these claims that they've uncovered this grand conspiracy from 9-11. And if if you read a lot of what's out there based off of this, these documents... Not that they don't carry weight. It's just you have to be into insurance liability claims to really care about what's going on. So how is the
1: Dark Overlord making
0: money? The Dark Overlord is making money because they have, like, levels with this leak that they've been um, touting. And the levels of the leak are basically unlocked. The levels of the leak are unlocked by the Dark Overlord when they hit a certain Bitcoin amount. They're basically on they've been on twitter they've been on reddit they've been on other like underground blockchain based forums by the way they're getting kicked off as soon as there is any sort of realization that the dark overlord So wait there is. still could be
1: a story here they haven't hit the top level of They have
0: not hit the top level i think as of this podcast recording they've only hit level 2 but Uh, again we've been privy to all of those documents so far we've decrypted them we've looked through them they're dense there's a lot there but uh, again it's not anything that's going to be front page news now I will say that is what's interesting here and that's still to be uncovered is the method by which they went about this and especially the job listing that uh digital shadows found. The job listing is interesting because we did a story about six months ago that Serbian law enforcement arrested somebody that they categorized as uh, the leadership of Dark Overlord and that arrest was made in conjunction with the FBI. Couldn't get the FBI to comment on it, there's been no conversation about it, but the Dark Overlord came out about 48 hours after that happened and went, we'll be fine, we're good. The job listing that we found shows that they might not have been good for a while. I mean, the job listing is really, really interesting in the fact that if you took away the fact that it said the dark overlord and it wasn't on some underground uh, dark web forum, this could be a job listing for any security apparatus that you could think of. I mean, any company that works across Windows, Linux, Unix-based stuff, which is... A lot of tech companies out there, this this looks like your run-of-the-mill job listing. So it's really, really interesting that they're so formal with it. And one, that they're so formal with it. But two, that they're looking for help overall. Because the group has said, no, we're good. Like, you're not going to get us. Like, we're still out there. I mean, you would assume
1: that they'd have these connections and wouldn't have to post anything. So what do we know the Dark Overlord from? Like, The Dark
0: Overlord is responsible for a number of hacks that have made news... Probably the most notable one is that time that a season of Orange the New Black, the hit Netflix show, yeah. leaked early. Um, I think it leaked about a week before uh, it was supposed to come out.
1: Oh, that's boring. That happened
0: because yeah. the Dark Overlord hacked a production company that had been working with Netflix. Uh, I, I believe they were like just editing the show. And the Dark Overlord hit that company, pulled all those files, and held them for ransom. The Dark Overlord has been tied to a bunch of other stuff, particularly causing some havoc with some, like, Midwestern and, I believe, some school districts in Montana, really scaring some some people to say, like, oh, we're going to come after your kids, stuff like that, which is messed up. But there was there was <sighs> no loss of life or nobody was hurt or, thank God, or anything like that. So they had this really like, almost haphazard way of finding their targets. But they are very media-savvy, and they uh, are very just money-driven. Like, this isn't a hacktivism thing. This isn't a nation-state thing. This is just a loose conglomerate of hackers just causing havoc for havoc's sake.
1: Yeah, okay, dark overlord people, time to get out of your mother's basement and meet some actual (laughs) people in person.
0: So... (laughs) <laughs> it's, I mean, look, we're, we're going to keep following this because they do keep popping up on uh, some dark web forums and some blockchain-based websites that do, like, blogs that are, like, PaySpin esque stuff. So uh, I, th- there really hasn't been any news since their latest drop uh, of documents, and I'm not sure that there's going to be any news, but th- they're going to find something else. Like, we're going to be talking about this crew for a while.
1: Yeah, I mean... Do something interesting, please. So attorneys for Hal Martin, the former U.S. National Security Agency contractor, accused of perhaps the largest theft of government secrets in American history, said in a court filing that government prosecutors have not allowed access to evidence necessary to mount a sufficient defense. The defense seeks duplicates of the hard drives of seized devices seized from Martin, as well as copies of whatever computers the NSA used to create a database of information that is seized. The government's inadequate expert disclosures made it impossible for us to effectively prepare Mr. Martin's defense and place the trial schedule at risk. So, Greg, this is all tied to shadow brokers, right?
0: Yes. Uh, Hal Martin is, you know, this former NSA contractor that has been, you know, this case has been going around for two years. They found like 50 terabytes of data at his house, and it wasn't all digital. It was, you know, a lot of it was like paper. Uh, stuff that he had taken home from the NSA, but there was a huge story uh, from Kim Zetter in Politico earlier this week that showed that how Martin had tried to reach out to a Kaspersky researcher prior to the Shadow Brokers leak to be like, I, I need to talk to Eugene Kaspersky uh, about some some things here. And that Kaspersky researcher then turned around to the NSA and went, uh, y- your boy's trying to pull something here. Like You might want to go figure out what's going on. So There's starting to be some loose ties to how Martin and what eventually became the shadow brokers dump. Uh, To back up a a little bit, it's been a while now that Martin has been, you know, detained, not detained, but this case has been going on for a while now. And real early on, the government came out and said, we don't think that this guy is responsible for anything to do with the shadow brokers. And now with this story that has come out, uh, well, that may not be so much the truth. Like, he was trying to do something, necessarily leaking NSA tools. I don't know. But it looks a lot shadier than it did six months ago, a month ago. But on on top of this, the fact that the lawyers for Hal Martin aren't able to gather any of that evidence that the government has, like— that's not a great look like i would imagine that the lawyers for hal martin are reading this politico story and going why don't why don't we know that like why why can't we have that and why are we reading about it in politico not getting it in our discovery
1: i mean yes but look um he should have had any of that data in his home it's treason he should be tried for it um throw the book at him
0: yeah i I mean i I I take a hard line on all that yeah um treason I mean, is pretty strong i don't know that it's necessarily that yet only because they haven't tied him to shadow brokers if they can tie him to shadow brokers and they can tie the shadow brokers to russian intelligence then uh, i i get it i i wouldn't be surprised okay but
1: why do you have that information at your house like i don't understand why you would break rules
0: Yeah, uh, it's It's, it's not, not a great look. But also, so another wrinkle to this is, let's go back to the Kaspersky Politico story. All of this had been going on under the auspice of Kaspersky's fight with the U.S. government. The fact that the U.S. government had said that Kaspersky was a threat to national security. Yet Kaspersky was sitting on the fact that an NSA researcher reached out to them, and then they turned around and informed the NSA that you know your boy is is out here like talking publicly about all of this yeah. information. You would think that even in a sealed legal atmosphere, that Kaspersky would go, "Wait, you think we're a threat to national security? Look what we just did for you." Yeah. Like, I, I don't I, – I'm really at a loss for words as to how Kaspersky and their legal defense wouldn't turn around and go, you're going to call us a threat to national security, but we just did you this huge solid with all of these tools. Like, there's a lot – like, this little revelation, the fact that he was DMing Kaspersky researchers may be little in a vacuum, but it's such a crucial detail to the it way that all detail. of this unfolded. Yeah. That I, I – like, we're going to be focused on this little detail for months to come. Yeah, Absolutely. So in the other corners of the world, a trove of personal data on hundreds of German politicians and public figures was dumped on Twitter, the latest in a series of data security issues for officials in that country. The leaked data include non-sensitive information, such as email addresses used by German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and in other cases, sensitive details like credit card information, online chats, and addresses were exposed. Yet shortly, and remarkably, German police arrested a 20-year-old man... Who, after they searched the suspect's home, confiscated his computer and other personal materials, and then the young man just confessed to the crime. Uh, Janet, German police seem to move much quicker than their American counterparts.
1: <laughs> yes, they do. Um, that's interesting. Um, that kind of tells me that that 20-year-old wasn't was either really good at what he does, but horrible at covering his tracks, or. Um, they just made all that data really easy to access.
0: Well, I think it's a little bit of both because in his confession, he was like, they, of course, asked him, what Gibbs, Why are you doing this? And he turned around and said, no, I, I didn't like what the politicians were saying. Yeah. So I, I found all of it and dumped it. But I'm just amazed at the speed. I mean, how many times, not that this in itself uh, has happened Stateside, But how many times do we have data breaches where personal information is, and it takes months, months to to find a culprit or to even point a finger at somebody? Like, the the German, I'm not an expert on the German legal system, but it doesn't strike me that they're that wildly different than the American legal system. So why can they find this all so quick? I mean, maybe we, yeah. it, It takes us a while to do the same thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe we should be prosecuting um, the keeper of the data instead, right? So when Facebook gets hacked, maybe we should be prosecuting people on the Facebook team that are supposed to be securing the data uh, instead of the I person mean, who found it. Yeah, that's
0: an that's an interesting way to think about it in the fact that the gross negligence right. ends up being a, a company issue. Yeah. Like, I... I, I I don't disagree with that notion at all. I think that's an interesting way I mean, to, to go yeah. about it. But I mean, but then what would you do for things like OPM? Is the government going to indict <laughs> itself? Like, Fair enough. Right. I mean,
1: it, it makes it difficult, but it just, um, it's, it's sort of interesting um, that this data is so easy to access. It's too soon to tell whether North Korean hackers were responsible for a cyber attack that prevented multiple major U.S. Newpa- newspapers from delivering weekend editions on time. The attack last month against the Tribune Company distributing printing operations at papers including Los Angeles Times, the San Diego Union-Tribune, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Several sources told the Los Angeles Times that the attack appeared to be caused by Rye Oak, a type of ransomware that low technical capabilities, while Rye Oak shares attributes from the Hermes malware, which is often attributed to suspected North Korean hackers known as Lazarus Group, Researchers told CyberScoop that doesn't mean Young Yang was launched a digital assault against U.S. press institutions. Greg, it wasn't North Korean who did this, right? Uh,
0: No, Uh, and it is too soon to tell. But, you know, the fact that it was Ryuk uh, and that Lazarus Group likes to use Ryuk doesn't necessarily point in the right direction. Um, Interesting enough, um, CrowdStrike and I believe FireEye have some research out. Uh, We wrote about the CrowdStrike research. You can check it out on CyberScoop that um, Ryuk, while it has been commodity ransomware for a while, it's been sort of retailed by a Russian um, criminal group. Oh, interesting. Um, And it's interesting because they've been given some new names. We have like new APT names now. Yes. Like instead of Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, we have now uh, the overall criminal group here. CrowdStrike refers to as Wizard Spider, and the group that has sort of retailored Ryuk uh, to uh, sort of use it for financial gain is referred to as Grim Spider. So, if you want to start seeing some fancy art, some cyber spiders yes. crawling around, we need to system. make Harry
1: Potter references when right? referring
0: to them going so, forward. Um, yeah, uh, so the Russians. Russian criminals have been using Ryuk. Now, that is to say that that doesn't mean that the Russians are necessarily behind this attack on major U.S. newspapers as well. We don't have an attribution for that yet. But it's interesting to see that this is the ransomware variant that now is causing all of the problems. Like, there's been Lockheed ransomware, and uh, we've talked about that for for, forever. There's, um, I mean, we could talk about the different variants for hours. But it, it, it's always so interesting to me to see just which one is the one that becomes like the latest weaponized ransomware. Because there, I mean, there are tons of different variants. So it, it, it's always fascinating to me to see like it's just like they've spun a wheel and it's like, okay, let's fix this one. Okay, great. Now yep. it's it's back out there. So uh, this is what a lot of researchers are watching for. I don't think that it's necessarily behind. This Tribune Company attack, and uh, t- th- th- there was also I want to point something out. There was a lot of noise kicked up by journalists, not necessarily cybersecurity journalists, just journalists overall. That when this first happened, they were like, oh, "Attack on the free press! Like this is a dangerous for our democracy." And it's like, oh, "Guys, like I mean, who gets okay, a free newspaper okay, let's, let's let's calm down. Like, yeah. this was disruption, but this is also an ICS. Security thing. Yeah. Like, maybe don't put your printing presses on the internet. Like it's it's just that. <laughs> and and you can get your news elsewhere. Like it's it's okay it if online. there were some people yeah. on the West Coast that didn't get their printed edition of the San Diego U- Union Tribune. I imagine they probably dialed it up on their phone and got what they were getting anyway. This isn't the, the <laughs> end of the press. Like, let's everybody calm down on that front.
1: Interesting.
0: So Marriott International revised their numbers from their big breach saying that now 383 million only customer records were stolen in uh, the data breach, down from the original estimate of 500 million. However, 25.5 million passport numbers were also compromised in the breach, with 5.25 million passport numbers just stored in plain text, not encrypted at all. This provided hackers, of course, with a valuable means of stealing identities. And the hotel chain previously said it would compensate customers for passport replacements if they can prove they have been victims of fraud. The company also said that it believes approximately 8.6 million encrypted payment cards were also involved in the attack. Jen, do you feel better since the numbers went down or worse about the fact that the passports were in plain text?
1: Um, can we just stop and talk about the plain text? They're only replacing passports if they can prove fraud, they should be obligated to pay for the 5.25 million passports to get replaced. And I would not
0: be surprised if that is part of pending pending legal like litigation I mean, coming. Like yeah. that, that's not they're not going to leave it up to the uh, you know good faith of the I mean, company. Like I have this to is prove- one of the biggest hacks in the world. Um, you're gonna have class action lawsuit. That is a class, class action, action lawsuit. lawsuit.
1: Absolutely. And
0: you're probably going to see some judge go, no, no, no. You, you will. compensate yeah. You will compensate. Customers. I'm sure
1: there's a bunch of lawyers right now getting ready on a oh, class a- action absolutely. lawsuit. Oh, absolutely.
0: This is. I mean, this is going to stretch out for months. This if is not ridiculous. Years, just like any other of, of these um, big hacks, but passports in plain text. Like I just, uh, I, 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 I'm at a loss for words. Like why what why yeah. why would you,
1: and i mean why and, did you do that and re- revising down from 500 million to basically 400 million it is same difference yeah right it's still I mean, a big well, number well, whatever at that point yeah
0: like, you're still wrecked beyond belief
1: yeah so the fbi has sounded the alarm about security vulnerabilities and a widely used port connection and buildings calling attention to an often overlooked segment of critical infrastructure In a private notice the bureau said the port connection, which allows building operations to communicate with control systems and buildings, leaves unpatched devices on those networks exposed to hackers. Major universities, state governments, and communication companies are among the organizations affected. Security experts told CyberScoop that the building automation sector is lagging behind others, partly because there is money, partly because there is less money in the sector. Greg, what type of systems are we talking about here?
0: So think about all of. The uh, automated ways that a building can run now, particularly around like just HVAC Mm -hmm. systems or automated security systems. Um, Think about all of the key fobs that we have when we go into um, enterprises to swipe ourselves into buildings. Or I know in our office between 6 o'clock and 6.03 p.m. uh, during business hours, uh, Monday through Friday, between six o'clock and 6:03, our HVAC system kicks off. It's almost, it's funny, it's almost like a steam whistle back in the early oh, 20th yeah. century yeah. that's like, okay, work day's over. Um, all of that stuff is automated and it's all just like anything else. It's all on computers now, and those computers, more often than not, tend to be connected to the internet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this isn't the sexiest stuff when it comes to ICS security. Like, we're not talking about the power grid or an oil refinery or anything like that. But it's still dangerous because, I mean, think back to the way that the Target hack happened. Mm -hmm. They found a way into the point of sale system through the HVAC system. So if there are some basic networking functions that have alarming security vulnerabilities, and we know the way that computers like this on the ICS side are connected to the internet, well, you've just created uh, a pathway to get into a network, like not through the side window, like almost like the Shawshank Redemption, like crawling through the pipes Mm -hmm. and you know, popping open a sewer grate and you're in a system. I mean, yeah, it's always gonna be easier to fish somebody's email to get into a system until maybe you start listening to cybersecurity uh, experts and all of that stuff gets Mm -hmm. patched. Well, now there's this. And again, yeah, this isn't sexy, and there isn't money in this sector. But if you have these glaring vulnerabilities, hackers are going to find their it's way in. Got to get in. fixed. So yep. that's why the FBI has sounded the alarm on this. I mean, and this is good on the FBI for doing their due diligence and putting these security alerts out there to say, hey, um, look, this isn't the this isn't necessarily like, uh, you know, uh, uh, a Windows patch that needs to yeah but now like this isn't threat level red like this is uh you know tlp green just be aware of it you should probably fix this when you have the time but fix it instead of just leaving it go so to the parts of the government that are functioning house <laughs> democrats included cybersecurity measures in a massive bill unveiled as congress gets ready to begin a new session the bill HR1 or the called For the People Act includes an array of legislation such as a plan to force all presidential nominees to disclose their tax returns, new campaign finance rules, and changes to sexual harassment law. However, cybersecurity is also a major component and will repurpose much of the language from the Election Security Act which was proposed last year by Mississippi Democrat Benny Thompson would also require states to replace paperless voting systems, create grants to help states audit their election results, and force election system vendors to report data breaches. General election security is not going away no matter what year it is. No,
1: it's not, and it's great. Um, I don't like talking about it, but it's... Um, I, I think it's kind of overdone, but it, it's certainly um, now sort of like a standard thing to get redone, which
0: is kind of cool. Yeah, I think that it's smart to also... In, in the very Washington way, included in a major, major package, because that's generally how a lot of yep. like cybersecurity and federal IT legislation tends to get passed. I remember uh, Fatara, I, I think Fatara was attached to a budget bill or, or one, uh, a, like a, a spending bill. Um, what was it, the Technology Modernization Fund, I think was also put on top of uh, a funding bill as well, so that's generally the way that things tend to get done now, for better or for worse. So, like stuff like the Election Security Act and all of the other cybersecurity bills that focused on election security from last Congress, they were never going to pass on their own because they just weren't. Yeah. They weren't going to get enough support to get more attention from the, the greater base. So, I think attaching it to a bigger bill like this is a smart way to go about it. Now, it could very well just be paired off as this thing gets. Pushed through the House and the Senate, as you know, that happens on bills. But at the same time, I, I really like the effort that this isn't going away, and they're trying, you know, every way that they can to try to to get this codified.
1: But I will say, it's a little bit scary that we have to include um, something as important as cybersecurity in with sort of like a really big overarching bill that includes so much other things. You would think that people would care enough to be standalone we Well, get
0: more security experts into Congress. I mean, that would also help. Well, that would help. Yeah. So
1: kitchen and office goods giant, OXO, has been notifying customers of a data breach, a task it has performed multiple times over the past few months after the credit card skimming malware mage cart was found on its e-commerce website. The latest discovery was made on December 18th, according to the notice. The malware, which has been found to be used by several different groups, skims various information from billing forms used on e-commerce sites. The December notice comes as OXO has previously issued breach notification offers, notification letters in October. Greg, so Magecar has moved to the kitchen.
0: Yeah, um, they're, they're back. Probably, I guess it's better to say that they never left. It, it was really funny. I had somebody that was affected by this breach uh, send me the letter and be like, this is a pretty big brand. I haven't seen anything about this. And the letter was dated late December. Um, but then, as I got to searching, I found that there were a number of breach notification letters put on uh, attorney general's websites uh, across the country. I think there's one in Vermont, there was one in New Hampshire that were all dated in October. So, it, it's really interesting in that. This has been a problem for a while now for them, and we've heard about this a lot with sites that have been hit by Magecart, is that IT teams and security engineering teams go out and flush their uh, systems and pull out the code only to find that it's returned. I mean, these groups using Magecart are pretty savvy in figuring out ways to inject JavaScript into these e-commerce forms. So... um, yeah, I, I would always check to make sure that you're using the right website when it comes to buying things and always watch your credit cards. Uh, I mean, again, the person that reached out to me too said that she had thought that this was maybe the reason that she saw some fraud on her credit card, but it turned out to be something else. But I'm sure a lot of other people have started to see fraud alerts pop up based on the fact that they've had their credit card stuff pulled through MageCard. But also, I, I, I will say, and look, buy whatever you want. Shop however you want. To go on OXO's website to get something, I feel like, is a little bit of overkill. Like, you can get OXO stuff at your CVS or your Walgreens or, or well, things like Well, on Amazon. What like, have Amazon. Or, yeah, like yeah. even Amazon if you really want to go get it. But I, I'm saying, like, just go out and buy it. Right. <laughs> like... like that you, you can find other dust pens and other stuff like that. Like it's it's remarkable to me, like the breadth at which these mage card actors will go to uh, try to pull credit card numbers. We're talking about ticket we've now British Airways ticketmaster new egg I think there was uh, Bevmo which is that like uh online uh, uh, beer and wine retailer and now Oxo like they are hitting whatever they can retail wise and this has got to be driving retail people nuts like it's uh, it, I it, imagine it, this it, is it's much funny the, the National retail Federation has their big show in New York next week and I would love to talk to a bunch of people there uh, about um you know their headaches with Magecart. so if you're out there listening you're retail based uh retail security based and want to talk about Magecart, and you're going to be at the show we're going to have some people there definitely hit us up we'd oh, love yeah. to talk to you so a startup company famous for purchasing zero-day exploits is increasing its bounties to anyone who discovers one in apple's operating systems or popular messaging technologies zerodium earlier this week announced it will pay up to 2 million for remote ios jailbreaks million for information that allows for remote code execution in WhatsApp, iMessage, or other texting apps, and $500,000 for Google Chrome exploits. The bounties are up from $1.5 million, $500,000, and $200,000, respectively. While many other companies offer bug bounties for their own products, Sorodium offers a different service. The Washington state-based firm pays for original research that it resells to government customers that use the information to infiltrate popular software and devices. Jen, the rise in prices has to mean good things for security, right?
1: Yeah, I guess it does. Um, I was sort of thinking it was bad, but I guess if you're paying more, that means it's it's harder to find.
0: Yeah. Uh, the the bounty goes up. It's it's harder to find. And uh, it's really interesting. There were some interesting comments from Zerodium's founder uh, after this sort of broke, like, w- what are we getting at here with, with the rise in prices? And he said, particularly with Apple, that... A lot of these things that we've been searching for, iOS jailbreaks and problems in iMessage, they already exist, but the thing that makes them so expensive is the persistence. And what that persistence is, is, it means basically staying on a phone or staying on an iOS device. Because after you turn off a device or you reboot a device, that may make it go away. With Android, there's Android persistence is pretty, I don't want to say common, but it's a lot easier to to have that baked into some sort of malware. Uh, With Apple, the persistence is hard and the founder has said as much and that's where a lot of these prices come from. So it's really interesting to see where these zero days are going, how hard it is to build, and the appetite to cut a check to make sure that they are obtaining them. It's a really, really interesting market.
1: it's awesome that they're doing it. So to some announcements from CES, Comcast is launching a subscription service to help its Wi-Fi customers better protect their home networks from cyber threats. For $5.99 a month, Comcast XFi Advanced Security monitors all devices on a network for suspicious activity, blocks anything if necessary, and notifies the customer. The service was announced at the Consumer Electronics Show, at which many new internet-connected products are announced every year, like smart assistants and home appliances. Some products are potential gateways for hackers and launching pads for botnets and are often not designed with the security as priority. Some 20.4 billion devices will be connected to the internet by 2020, up from 8.4 billion in 2017, according to projections from the market research firm Gartner. Um, Greg, it's a great first step in getting IoT services in front of more people, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, Comcast is everywhere. Uh, you're probably, they're one of you know, the big telecom companies when it comes to providing Americans with internet. So if they're adding this on top to, you know, watch over all of the devices, watches, thermostats, uh, smart doorbells, whatever, you know, you want to connect to And the I got to tell you,
1: I have all of those things. And every once in a while, I'll be sitting in my living room and I will see the red light go on my security camera. And I'll just wonder to myself... Well, it's off when I walk in. So who's turning it on?
0: Right. So (laughs) uh, if they're watching it from... That's a problem (laughs) on its own, right? (laughs) It is a problem. It's funny that you bring that up. Uh, The Intercept did a really good story regarding Ring and their lack of security when it comes to video feeds on their smart cameras and doorbells. So that's something totally separate. This Comcast thing seems more like... Uh, a network guarding, like if your smart fridge is suddenly beaconing to China, you, you would get a ping about yeah. that. And good on Comcast for doing this. It's just one of those things also where, look, Comcast is a huge enterprise. They're a company that is always going to look in order to make money and whatever. that That's what they do. I think that this could be even better for consumers if this was just part of a package like it's not just an add-on the same way it's an add-on to your cable system if you want cinemax or something like this like put it in there and maybe bake it into the fees that come into your your internet bill i mean i guess that is just the same thing it's just a matter of like semantics but still at the same time like Stuff like this should be standard, I feel It should like. be standard. That, that's what I'm getting yeah. at, is that we're moving to a world. We, we've heard about this this entire decade, that we're moving to a world where there's just going to be billions and billions and billions of devices on our networks by the time 2020 hits. Well, we're 360-some days from 2020. So this isn't just something that should be... Necessarily available for somebody that just wants to cut a check. Like, this should be part of a standard package. It should be standard, yeah. You should get, and not just from Comcast. Cox should be able to do this. Verizon should be able to do this. RCN should be able to do this. Any telecom should be able to do this. So, it's a good first step, but I think to go that extra step, which is needed just for the overall health of our digital lives, that this needs to be part of standard packages when it comes to the internet. Absolutely. So also at CES, Yubico announced two new security keys as the company continues to make its line of hardware authenticators available on more platforms. The new security key NFC is a USB-A key that has near-field communication capability, essentially merging features that were separately available on some of Ubico's products into one key. That key is now on sale for 27 bucks. The other key, the YubiKey for Lightning, is geared specifically for Mac and iOS products but is being privately reviewed by developers for now. That Apple-oriented key has that company's proprietary Lightning connector on one side and a USB-C connector on the other, plugging directly into iPhones, iPads, Macs, and other USB-C products. The company said the new keys are part of its stated mission to make strong authentication to all platforms. Jen, will this make you get a YubiKey? Probably. I mean, I think it's really interesting that the... Lightning key is coming. I think that's a good product overall. We were talking about this in the newsroom a little bit this week when this launch is that the NFC part, like I have a YubiKey. My YubiKey works on NFC, but I have an uh, an iPhone X. So I could get a YubiKey for Lightning, but my phone already has the NFC. So why would I do both there a little bit? So I think that this the UB key for lightning key is interesting for me from a MacBook perspective. Because the new MacBook keys, my number I shouldn't say my number one issue, but my number two issue, the number one issue is actually the keyboard. The number two issue with the MacBook <laughs> Pros is this the USB C connectors because the wide array of stuff that I still use is standard USB. Right. And I have to get the dongle out and I have to plug it in that yeah. way. But you and have that's out now. Annoying. Yeah. So to have the ability to just plug in a YubiKey into my USC onto my laptop, that's awesome. Like I would totally get one just for my computer, but then I have two keys. So I, I like the way that things are moving, but I don't necessarily think that people with keys that use them on their iPhones already are gonna jump to get a key for Lightning.
1: I mean, fair enough, but I mean, there's a big market out there of people who don't have one, I don't have one.
0: Yeah, so uh, good on them for keeping you know, up with their products and, and keep innovating because I do think that this is an actual, I, I, I keep saying it because I, I think that Ubico has a good model here in that it's just a simple digital key to protect all your stuff.
1: So now on interview with Allison Ann, where we talk about encryption and the data triad. Check it out.
0: Okay, joining us now is Ellison Ann Williams, the CEO of InVale and a member of Cyberscoop's Elite List, the first one that we've had on the podcast. Woo! Ellison, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Greg. So, talk to us a little bit about InVale. I know that InVale does a lot with data security. So, what is unique about InVale's approach to securing data and how does it solve the problem better?
2: Yeah, so NVAIL focuses completely on securing data when it's being used or processed by things like typically search or analytic, as opposed to the other two more traditional areas of the data security triad that most people are more familiar with, securing data at rest on the file system or in transit when it's moving through the network.
1: So how difficult was this challenge to solve and whether approaches have taken place that have failed?
2: It was really the last gap in data security. So if you look back over the last 20 or 30 years in the data security landscape, you'll see everyone solutioning around how do I protect my data as it lives on the file system. So data at rest or how do I protect my data when it's moving or traveling through the network? But people just weren't able to crack, how do I protect it when it's being used or processed, which is why we call it the last gap in data security. So this was predicated on some breakthrough that occurred inside of the US government, uh, specifically an area of encryption called homomorphic encryption that allows you to process data in a completely encrypted state. So really closing off that last gap of data security to make sure that it's protected, not only when it's at rest and and moving around the network, but also when it's being used or processed.
0: So I know that you talk a lot about, we've talked about it before, the data security triad. Talk to me a little bit about what that is.
2: So three components to data security that compromise uh, the data security triad. So securing data at rest on the file system, so standard file-based encryption or in-storage technology types of encryption for your data. This is when, for example, you want to make sure that your credit card number is protected as it's being stored in your database. The second element of the data security triad is securing data in transit. So when it's moving through your network. So for example, as you're moving data from your on-prem environment out to the cloud or it's traveling internally within your organization. And then the third element of the data security triad is securing it when it's being used or processed. So if you think about it, the way people most often typically meaningfully use or process data is by running some kind of a search or analytic over it. So that's the third pillar. When you're processing that data, when you're searching it, when you're going to, then go find that credit card number that you stored securely at rest in your database and pull that out so that you can do something with it. It's when data becomes most valuable.
0: So like we were saying, data is often an organization's most valuable asset, Give us an example of the conversations that you're hearing inside enterprises, whether it's from the public sector or the private sector, because I know Enveil has done a lot with the government. Talk to me about the changing conversation that you're hearing when it comes to the way that enterprises are securing their data.
2: So enterprises are thinking about data more holistically. So not only how do I secure it within my walls, but as people move to the cloud, how do I secure it there, and then what does that really mean? Because typically, as we've talked about over the last, you know, couple of decades, they've looked at the problem in a very narrow sense, whereas, you know, I've got data, it's a very valuable asset to the organization. If people are trying to break in and steal things, they're trying to steal data, because that's where the value is. So how do I just keep it protected as it's being stored? But those conversations change completely when you look at processing data outside of your walls and you have to take that more holistic view because it's very easy for them to go and apply the same technique to encrypt their data at rest in other locations like the cloud. But what happens when they go use it or process it? It gets decrypted off of that storage technology And then it's all available for an attacker or a system administrator or anyone that you don't want to see that valuable information out in that environment that you don't own or control anymore. So it's a more holistic look at not only how do I protect it at rest in that environment, and as it moves back and forth from my spaces out into the cloud, but also what happens when I go use it and process it and making sure that it's protected in that uh, element as well.
1: Let's sit back for a second. How did you get into
2: cybersecurity? Oh, that's a long story. Uh, so I spent quite a bit of time at the National Security Agency. So I was a mathematician by training, uh, almost completely by accident. So I thought math was a fun thing. I would do that for a while. I ended up getting a PhD. I was pretty young uh, when I did that. And then NSA knocked and said, hey, we do cool stuff. We can't tell you what we do. And that sounded really awesome to me. Um, I love the mission. I love my country. And so I thought an opportunity to do really cool technical things, serve my country at the same time, sounded like a pretty good plan. So I went into the National Security Agency, which is the largest employer of mathematicians in the world.
0: I didn't know that. Okay, that's interesting.
2: Yeah, largest employer of mathematicians in the world. They really employ mathematicians for their ability to think critically about a problem, not necessarily for you know, core paper pencil equation solving or theorem proving on a daily basis, even though uh, we do a fair amount of that too. Right. So went into NSA and then was exposed to a whole host of things and found myself uh, veering into cybersecurity or what's now called cyber cybersecurity. So got bit by the bug.
0: So how have you pulled on your experiences from the NSA and turned it into a company?
2: So for, from an NSA perspective, of course, uh, the concern is nation-state threat and attack. So we architect, we engineer for nation-state types of security. Now, in the commercial space, we're seeing the prevalence of nation state attack. It's on the rise and it's become commonplace. So what was happening, you know, sometimes it was a little bit more niche or esoteric to see a nation state coming in and stealing those crown jewels or those data assets mm-hmm. is now a daily occurrence. So having been steeped and grown up in how do I protect my most valuable assets from a nation-state nation attack, now translates very nicely into the commercial world because it's exactly what our commercial customer base is looking for. So how do I protect my uh, data assets and do so at a nation-state with a nation-state security posture? So
1: did you move out of NSA right into Impeller, or did you do something in between?
2: So came out of NSA directly and started and veiled the company a little over two years ago at this point. So what
1: did you sort of see in the market that that you just thought, I've got to leave here and I've got to solve this other problem?
2: So we developed pretty amazing breakthroughs inside of NSA centered around enabling trusted compute to occur in completely untrusted locations. So locking down that third pillar of the data security triad when it's in use. So how do I enable trusted usage of data in environments that I do not trust? And that capability not only has massive implication for the federal or intelligence domain, but also in the commercial space around cloud processing, around compliance and regulation and things like GDPR, for example, around crown jewel data protection. So those that the subset of the most sensitive data within a bank, for example, making sure that stays protected. And then opening up new revenue generation opportunities around things like secure data monetization. So such a vast array of applicability and use case horizontally in the commercial market that it was a great opportunity to come and really expand and commercialize that capability far beyond what it ever was inside okay. of the intelligence community
0: so let's talk about that a little bit further because i know that look the nsa has you know it's stereotypical sort of what everybody thinks of the nsa is the surveillance stuff and everything and There's clearly a part of that because, you know, they do that to protect the country. However, there's a lot of technology creation that does happen at the NSA, whether it is open source or it gets spun out into commercialization. Can you kind of talk about the iteration process that goes into building technologies at the NSA? Obviously, without giving away classified information, but I'm interested to hear, you know, what is that? like inside the NSA, when you're building stuff that you know is eventually going to go outside the walls of Fort Meade?
2: So NSA does a variety of tech development uh, from a research perspective, from an operational perspective, all designed to solve mission problems for the U.S. government. Now, in that uh, process, there is an ability to occasionally bring some of that novel capability out into the commercial world, and there are a variety of mechanisms to do that, NSA has an entire public-facing office uh, focused there, which is the technology transfer program. So people go and they look on NSA.gov. They can find the, the technology transfer program office. There are you know a list of all kinds of technologies and capabilities that have been released by the agency in a variety of Capacities. And so there is a lot of opportunity for people that are inside of the US government, particularly the National Security Agency, to develop unique capability in that space and then bring it out into the commercial world.
1: So let's go back to to Envell and tell us about some of the sort of use cases of your technology.
2: Yeah, so from a commercial perspective, I like to describe the use cases or think about them in a, in a stack where the bottom of that stack is around compliance and regulation. So enabling organizations to ensure compliance with various regulatory requirements. GDPR is a great example of this. It's you know common right now in the news. People are figuring out, hey, how do I really comply with GDPR beyond putting the notice on my website, which is what you saw a lot of people doing in the initial wave but thinking more deeply about how to protect their data that contains you know those eu resident identifiers and we come into play there with the usage of that data right making sure that none of those resident identifiers would be exposed during the using or processing of data we go up the stack a little bit around still internal data assets to the organization like this crown jewel data protection. So a good example of this would be high net worth individuals inside of a financial services institution. So the subset of data within the organization that carries a disproportionate amount of risk associated with it. That could be operational risk. It could be reputational risk. That New York Times front page test, making sure that that stays locked down at all points during processing within that organization's environment. Then if you move a little bit further up the stack, opening up new places that people can securely process workloads. Places like public cloud come up a lot. You know, everybody wants to migrate and move out to the cloud for a variety of reasons. But the big pause is, okay, how do I do that safely and securely? Make sure that my data, my customer's data is protected out in that environment. So we enable people to do that. And then finally, really unique applications around things like third party risk. So how do I the subsets of my data and allow, or my data assets, allow an organization or a third party to come process over it in a secure capacity without shipping subsets of that data off into the third party locations for processing where I lose control of it. I've lost positive control of my data assets in a place that I don't control. So claims processing and insurance is a good example of this. A lot of third parties are involved with insurance claims processing within healthcare organizations. And then finally, the one that I think is most exciting is opening up new revenue opportunities for organizations around secure data monetization. So powering premium services whereby uh, organizations can now monetize their data assets by allowing others to come and securely process over it within their environment.
0: And I feel like that's so important because we've seen just, especially in the past two weeks, just breach after breach Mm -hmm. after breach, where a lot of people are getting upset because they realize that their data is being monetized, but not necessarily protected. So I feel like you've kind of stumbled upon a solution here that look, the the, the making money off data isn't going to go away because obviously it is so lucrative. as, as much as we would like to talk about really driving home privacy laws. There's still going to be a lot that goes into that, and it's going to be a ways off. So by securing that data and making it fundamentally easier to monetize and stay secure, I feel like that's got to be something that a lot of companies are like, wow, we really need this and we could really use this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a win-win. So not only does it reduce liability for the organization that's monetizing those data assets, but it also protects the privacy and security of the person that that data belongs to. So it satisfies both.
0: So I want to get your thoughts on some of those breaches that uh, have recently come up. Because with things like Marriott and Google Plus and they're all flooding into my mind. There's been so many. Um, Is, would be securing, would securing their data prevent them from being written about on websites like CyberScoop? Like, I know there's a lot of talk about never finding a silver bullet, but I feel like securing data would go a long way to making sure that a lot of these breaches never hit the pages of all the tech websites.
2: Securing it holistically. Would get us there, right? You can't only look at data security in terms of, okay, I'm going to encrypt it in the file system, but when I go and process it, I get a web request or whatever, then that's in its unencrypted state. Or only doing it when it's moving through the network. So really viewing it uh, in its complete state throughout its lifecycle and how do I make sure that it's locked down at every point would help that. I think another interesting thing, because there's been a lot of di- different dimension in these different breaches that have come out recently, is the common threat of nation state attack. So we see nation states behind a lot of these recent breaches. And so the prevalence of nation state attack also means that we need to ensure a nation state security posture for the solutions that we put in place, because these are sophisticated attackers.
0: So, on to curiosity, we'd like to close out with a random question for you. If you could pick a movie character to play your life, who would you pick and why?
1: It's a terrible question. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's not terrible. It's, it's thought provoking. I don't know what I would answer.
2: A movie character to play my life. probably Meryl Streep from Out of Africa
0: okay okay I'm not familiar with that movie but I mean you can't go wrong with Meryl Streep I mean she
2: she she was awesome she was an extremely she played an extremely strong female character that went out to Africa um, followed her would-be husband he basically left her in the dust and she stood on her own and ran a farm against all odds when at a time when females did not do that
0: great and she's beautiful, so. Oh, there, there you go. Dang <laughs> well. Ellison, really appreciate you hopping aboard with us. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you to Ellison Ann for talking to us a little bit about what Enveil is doing and all about the data triad. Okay. Jen, that was, that was a lot. That was a lot. That was a lot this week. And I feel like it's gonna continue to be a lot because there's just a lot going on this month. This is actually a pretty big month for cybersecurity events. Um, are are you doing ShmooCon?
1: I'm doing ShmooCon,
0: how about you? Yeah, I will be around at ShmooCon, like I said earlier in the podcast, we're going to have some people at the National Retail Federation, uh, we're also going to have some people at the S4 conference down in Miami talking nice. about ICS stuff, so we're going to have a lot this week, and we're going to have a lot over the course of the month, a lot of good things uh, setting up uh, the year for 2019 in cyber security. So, Uh, Look forward to talking about it all over the course of the month and the year.
1: Absolutely. As always, stay curious. All right.
0: Take care, everyone. Bye.